What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we'll be speaking with Jeffrey Tubin about his new book, Homegrown, Timothy McVeigh and the Rise of Right-Wing Extremism. Jeffrey is the author of nine books covering such diverse topics as The Kidnapping of Patty Hearst, The Trial of O.J. Simpson, The Inner Workings of the Supreme Court, and the year 2000 election battle between Al Gore and George W. Bush. Jeff was the longtime chief legal analyst for CNN and staff writer for the New Yorker magazine. Jeffrey Tubin, welcome to That Said. Hi, Michael. It's great to have you. This is a fascinating book, the title of which is Homegrown, Timothy McVeigh and the Rise of Right-Wing Extremism. So tell me, Jeffrey, before we turn to the book about yourself, how does it come to pass that a magna cum laude graduate of the Harvard Law School practices law just for three or five years, and then decides to be a full-time journalist? Well, as my dad used to say, to make a long story unbearable, I, uh, you know, I did go to law school. I did practice law for a while, but I, I sometimes think I came into my genetic inheritance. Both my parents were journalists. Uh, my mother, Marlene Sanders, was a pioneering uh, woman correspondent at uh, CBS and uh, ABC when those were rare. My father was one of the founding fathers of news at public television, worked with Bill Moyers closely for many years. And so I always sort of had a foot in both worlds. I did a lot of student journalism. I freelanced when I was in law school. And then after a clerkship on the Second Circuit, I got a job as one as like the junior prosecutor on the Iran-Contra investigation. Uh, which I worked on for three years. And after that, I wrote a book about it. It was my first book was sort of, you know, it was called Opening Arguments about the Oliver North case. But I thought that was kind of a one off and I'd go back to being a lawyer. And I went to be an AUSA in Brooklyn, in the Eastern District of New York. And I did that for three years. Tina Brown was hired as editor of The New Yorker and sort of on a whim, she hired me. And I thought, what the hell, I'll try it for a while. And a year later, after I started at The New Yorker, the O.J. Simpson case happened. And I wrote some high-profile stories about O.J. Uh, I started appearing on TV. And that sort of launched me as a journalist in the mid-'90s. And I've been a journalist for the past 30 years. And not looking back, huh? No. You know, I mean, I like being a lawyer. It wasn't like I viewed being a journalist as an escape. But you know, just because I was uh, fortunate to land where I did at the New Yorker and then ABC and then CNN, 
I felt like this was a really good life for me. I loved covering the law, but I also felt like I was using my legal education. I mean, I, I covered stories and wrote books about stuff that uh, required some legal knowledge, but also the ability to translate it into regular English. So, you know, I, I, I don't feel like I've abandoned law. I just feel like I've put it to a different use. Indeed. So why did you decide to write this book? What was the triggering event? Well, there were really two reasons. One is back in 1997, I covered the McVeigh and Nichols trials in Denver, where they had been moved. So the story was rattling around in my head for a long time. I mean, I I knew the story, as one does when you cover two significant trials. But then in October of 2020, the FBI arrested the conspirators who were planning to kidnap Governor Whitmer of Michigan. And they were affiliated with the Michigan militia. And I knew that Terry Nichols, the co-defendant in the McVeigh case, had also been affiliated with the Michigan militia. And I began to see the similarities in the worldviews and the politics, and in some cases, the actual individuals involved. And I started looking into that. And then a few weeks later, January 6th happened. And I saw that the political agenda and the tactics of the January 6th insurrectionists turned out to be uh, very similar to what I saw in the 90s with McVeigh and Nichols. And I looked around, there hadn't really been ever a good book about the Oklahoma City bombing. And that's why I decided to take on Homegrown. And how did you come to be able to research it? It's incredibly well-researched. Well, this was where there was one incredible piece of good luck uh, as a journalist. Unbeknownst to me, and frankly, unbeknownst to anybody, as far as I can tell, in 2001, shortly after McVeigh was executed, Stephen Jones, McVeigh's lawyer, donated every scrap of paper from the Oklahoma City investigation to the Briscoe Center at the University of Texas. And there were 635 boxes, a million documents, and no one had looked at them effectively. And I saw that this was an incredible Trevor Trove of information, including all of McVeigh's conversations with his lawyers, the notes and memos about them, all of the discovery evidence that had been turned over, including all of the three FBI 302s. I have been covering trials for a long time and investigations, and there had never been uh, a resource like this, um, ethically questionable whether Jones should have donated it at all, but that wasn't my problem. And so that was the documentary raw material that I was working with. It was just uh, extraordinary. I then, of course, interviewed everyone who was still around, and that's most people, all the prosecutors, many of the FBI agents, certainly Jones and many other members of uh, McVeigh's defense team. So one advantage of of doing a book uh, a couple of decades after the fact is you know, people are are much more interested in talking and giving their side of the story. And uh, so I got wonderful cooperation. I felt like I really had a uh, sort of 360 degree view of this whole story. As I read it, and I became aware later in the book about Stephen Jones's turning over what I think is attorney-client privileged protected materials. But as you said, that's not either of our problem. As was as if you were sitting at council table Throughout the trial, it was as if you were giving us real life, real time 
the goings-on of, of this trial and, and the whole process that led up to it. Remarkable. Well, you know, one of the things you always wonder when you're covering a trial is, you know, what's the defense strategy? How has it evolved? What is the client saying to the lawyer? And what is the lawyer saying to a client? But as you point out, A, it's privileged and no one's supposed to talk about it. And B, it's just not available to a journalist. And here, you know, I had this incredible trove of material, which I, you know, was was thrilled to dive into. So you write in the prologue of the book that when Stephen Jones, the lawyer from McVeigh that we're talking about, first met him in prison, he wanted to explore one simple question. Why had a 27-year-old man who appeared ordinary in so many ways committed this horrific act? So let's try to answer that question by starting with who is Timothy McVeigh? Well, you know, I mean, and look, that's a central question in Homegrown is who, who is this guy and why did he do it? Uh, McVeigh grew up in a uh, effectively a suburb of Buffalo um, with what I describe as a conventionally unhappy family. His parents had a rancorous divorce. Uh, he didn't have a great relationship with either parent. Um, his father worked at a GM plant in the area for 30 years. His grandfather worked at the same GM plant uh, for, for also for 30 years. But that plant, like so much in the Buffalo area, was in grave decline as McVeigh was growing up in the 80s. So he grew up with economic uncertainty, although he was not poor by any means. And he turned to guns for entertainment. He he became obsessed with guns and was perhaps not surprisingly uh, drawn to the army shortly after his 18th birthday, where he was a very effective soldier for a couple of years uh, until he returned from the Gulf War, where he won a gold star and then uh, tried to make it in the Green Berets and Special Forces and he flunked out of that audition after just two days, uh, which left him really adrift, uh, just as Bill Clinton was uh, becoming president of the United States. And his his failure to advance in the army was uh, the key event uh, that led him on the spiral uh, to violence. You know, all through uh, his early years, he was drawn to right-wing material. He, he, he read the Turner Diaries, a dystopian novel, anti-Semitic, racist novel, you know, be- before he left in the army and in the army. He had poisonous relationships with black soldiers in the army, but it was only when he left and when he really became alienated from conventional life that the radicalization that led to the bombing just a couple of years later uh, took hold. And I want to just flesh out a little bit about the Turner Diaries, because the Turner Diaries, you write of it, and it's difficult to overstate the influence the Turner Diaries had on McVeigh. And he earned a living, in a sense, for a while selling at gun shows and the like, this book, the Turner Diaries. So let's flesh it out in a little bit more detail, Jeff, because it's so important to his philosophy. Right. The Turner Diaries was written by a uh, neo-Nazi named William Pierce, and it circulated privately printed, but broadly uh, in the 90s in advertisements in the back of uh, right-wing publications like Soldier of Fortune and The Spotlight. And the story of the Turner Diaries 
is uh, set in the then current day, where, according to the novel, an evil cabal of blacks and Jews has taken over the federal government. And the first thing they have done is passed a law called the Cohen Act, which calls for the confiscation of all privately owned weapons. Earl Turner decides to lead a rebellion against this evil federal government. And the triggering event for his rebellion is he rents a truck, fills it with uh, a fertilizer explosive, and sets it off next door to the FBI building in Washington, killing hundreds of people. That, in turn, leads to a broader rebellion against the evil federal government. That act in the Turner Diaries is very clearly, and McVeigh says this, the inspiration and the model for what he does in 1995 in Oklahoma City. His hope was, as with Earl Turner in the novel, um, the the uh, explosion outside a federal building would lead to the rising up of ordinary Americans against the evil federal government of Bill Clinton. And interestingly, you write of McVeigh, like Turner, that this ideology that they reflected had deep roots in American history, the quest for individual freedom. So they saw these acts as being progressive in terms of promoting their American right to freedom. Yeah. Absolutely, Michael. And, and, you know, this is not what my book is about, but I don't want to create the impression that, you know, right-wing extremism was born uh, with Timothy McVeigh. I mean, depending on how you count it, you can go back to slavery, you can go back to the know-nothings, you can go back to uh, Jim Crow. The idea that right-wing extremism protects the Constitution, protects freedom, is one that has deep roots in American history. You know, a wonderful book, which I quote in, uh, in Homegrown, Freedom's Dominion, by Jefferson Cowie, a professor at Tulane. It just won the Pulitzer Prize a couple of weeks ago. That book talks about how, in Alabama specifically, rebellion against the federal government was perceived as an act of freedom, that that's how you preserve freedom, and the federal government is an, is an evil oppressor. That sentiment is one that McVeigh reflected, but as Cowie's book illustrates, has deep roots in American history and, and, and a long legacy in, into the current day. And it's no accident that the Freedom Caucus, the far right in my political spectrum of thinking, the Freedom Caucus, Mark Meadows and the like, bears that name, Freedom Caucus, freedom from threats of overreaching federal power. Especially when it comes to guns. This is the link. This is the, uh, the, the, the most direct link between the McVeigh and, and the, the modern right-wing movement. You know, a lot of people remember, I think, that Tim McVeigh was motivated in significant part by his outrage at the FBI's raid on the Branch Davidian compound in Waco, which took place on April 19th, 1993. And the bombing, McVeigh decreed, had to be on the second anniversary. That date was chosen with great care. But he was just as outraged by Bill Clinton on September 13th, 1994, signing the assault weapons ban. 
And if you look at what the protesters on January 6th were most angry about, it often comes back to guns. And it also comes back, and this is another link to the use of the freedom in the Constitution, is their identification with the founding fathers. McVeigh had the Declaration of Independence memorized, not just the famous opening stanzas, but the parts where Jefferson justified the armed rebellion against the British. If you look at January 6th, you know, they were all talking about 1776. That's the title of the prologue of my book. And that link, that claimed link between right-wing extremism and the actions of the founding fathers is one that I think is really meaningful and revealing. You note that there was a nine-page plan for storming the Capitol drafted by the Proud Boys, and it was called 1776 Returns. And Alex Jones, the conspiratorial radio guy, says, we declare 1776 against the new world order. We need to understand we're under attack. We need to understand this is a 21st century warfare and get on war footing. I mean, it's... And Congresswoman Bobber, you know, the right-wing woman from Colorado, she tweets on the morning of January 6th, Today is 1776. I mean, that's how they view themselves, and it's how McVeigh viewed himself. So there is a trifecta of things that inform McVeigh. You mentioned uh, Waco and and Bill Clinton's assault weapons ban, but I want to flesh them out again in a little bit more detail. But start with Ruby Ridge, because I think it goes Ruby Ridge to Waco to the assault weapons ban, if we're following it logically. It is. Ruby Ridge was a confrontation in uh, 1992, actually, while George Herbert Walker Bush was still president, where the FBI uh, conducted a siege of uh, a compound in a remote area where several law enforcement officials and several uh, members of a family uh, were killed. Uh, It was a disaster for all concerned. But it was really the first signal event where the right wing of the 90s began to focus on the evils of the federal government. Interestingly, McVeigh uh, only became aware of Ruby Ridge several months after the fact when the magazines he read, like Soldier of Fortune, like The Spotlight, uh, began covering it. Uh, He never associated Ruby Ridge with the Bush administration, even though that's when it took over. He much more became aware of it once Clinton was president, and he felt that Ruby Ridge, like Waco, was proof positive that the federal government was out of control. Yes, in Ruby Ridge, a sniper, Deputy Marshall, shoots Randy Weaver, the the instigator of this, his wife, while she's holding a newborn baby and 14-year-old son and dog. And so they saw this as an assault on their freedom. Right. It was. I mean, it's it's a horrible story. I mean, it's a tragic story. Now, there have been many investigations of Ruby Ridge, and there was uh, a reason for uh, an armed siege there. Uh, certainly, it shouldn't have ended the way it did, and the death of Weaver's wife and and child and dog was you know tragic. But what's most important was how it was viewed in the right-wing movement as proof that the the federal government, not just the FBI, was irredeemably evil. 
And if there's anyone who had any doubt in that right wing after Ruby Ridge, that came all apart at Waco. That was a confirming event, right? Waco was, of course, an even greater disaster. There was a religious compound outside Waco, Texas, uh, run by this sect called the Branch Davidians, led by David Koresh. The, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms conducted a raid there that ended in a shootout with several agents killed and several members of the Branch Davidian compound killed. After that initial raid, there was a siege uh, that took place there that was taken over by the FBI, and it went on for more than a month. Uh, was followed nationwide. The FBI was tremendously embarrassed by their failure to draw the Davidians out. And ultimately, they injected tear gas into the compound with tank-like vehicles. That led to a horrible fire. Uh, Government investigation concluded that the Davidians set the fire themselves, though that remains controversial. What's not debated is that 78 people, including a number of children, were killed in that fire and in the the gunfire uh, that followed. I mean, a a mega, mega tragedy uh, that should have ended in any other way. Again, you can argue about whose fault it was, who should have surrendered, whether the FBI should have waited longer. But this, even more than Ruby Ridge, was something that affected McVeigh deeply. He actually went to Waco when uh, the siege was going on and sold bumper stickers about gun rights and tried to, you know, get close to the siege, though that he wasn't allowed. Uh, but it was certainly a motivating factor for many on the right during the early days of the Clinton administration. And then when the third thing is this trifecta, when Clinton becomes president and he signs the assault weapons ban into law, McVeigh said of this that it threatened his, quote, way of life his heritage, his income from gun shows, and maybe even his life itself, referring to Waco. And he decided at that point, you write, that he couldn't sit back in the defense mode any longer. He had to take proactive steps to prevent the loss of all that he holds dear. Yeah, it's important to remember the dates here. You know, Waco is April 19th, 1993. At that point, you know, McVeigh is living on the road and thinking about how he's going to take action against the federal government. And he's and he's taking these long drives all over the country, visiting Nichols in Michigan, visiting his friend Michael Fortier in Arizona, uh, visiting a, a, another friend uh, he had in Arkansas, all along listening to uh, Rush Limbaugh for three three hours a day. But it is when Clinton signs the assault weapons ban on September 13th, 1994, that is what seals the deal for McVeigh and Nichols to do what Earl Turner did and set off a bomb by a federal building. It is the assault weapons ban just as much as the Waco raid that inspires McVeigh to take the final step to extreme violence. So you've mentioned a couple of times the name Terry Nichols. Tell us about him. Who is he? Well, Terry Nichols was someone that McVeigh met on the first day of basic training. And just as McVeigh's life illustrates what it was like to grow up in a world of industrial decline in Buffalo, Nichols' life illustrates 
what it was like to grow up in a world of agricultural decline in the thumb of Michigan. He grew up on a struggling family farm in what was known as the farm crisis years. There was a grain embargo against Russia. There was bad weather. There were high taxes, more regulations, and family farms were struggling all over the country, but especially in Michigan. And Nichols' family, and Nichols in particular, as well as his brother James, decided to blame the federal government. His alienation, as McVeigh, ultimately fixated on the federal government. Even more than uh, McVeigh, Nichols was a professional loser. I mean, nothing in his life ever worked out. He essentially flunked out of college. He tried to make it in Las Vegas. He returned to the family farm. He married an older woman. She essentially dumped him and told him to join the army at the age of 33, which is a very advanced age, to, to join the army for the first time. He didn't do well out of the army, got a hardship discharge, sought out a uh, mail-order bride in the Philippines, who turned out to be a 16-year-old girl. When he returned to Michigan, this mail-order bride got pregnant with another man's child. Nichols married her anyway, and they returned to Michigan together. As you can see, you know, nothing in his life had really worked out. And so he was a willing participant, though very much a secondary participant, in the plot to bomb the Oklahoma City. You write of Nichols that he lost, in over the course of his life, what he regarded as his birthright, opportunity, economic security, cultural status. His was a life, you say, of the middle-class existence inching ever further out of his reach. And the important point to make about that, Michael, is that neither McVeigh or Nichols was ever poor in any uh, meaningful definition of that term. You know, they both grew up uh, in a middle-class world. But what's significant about their status was how much they feared losing it, that they had a life that they saw that was slipping away from them. So they didn't lead an aspiration for a life of great riches. They only wanted to preserve the status that their families once had, and they both saw it slipping away in ways that a lot of Americans did. And frankly, a lot of Americans turned to Donald Trump in 2016 for similar reasons of uh, economic and cultural worries. Yeah. About Isabella Wilkinson in her book, Cast, talks well about the losing of status in the formation of these right-wing ideologies. So we've got McVeigh, we've got Nichols, we've got a decision that they can't sit back any longer because of the assault weapons ban. And so they go about looking for something to do that would promote their thinking, and they decided to build a bomb, all of the Turner Diaries. So tell us about this building of the bomb. And they go to Marion, Kansas, and practice shooting targets with Hillary Clinton's face on it. And take us through this part of the book, Jeff. Well, you know, the book is in part, you know, a story of the evolution of politics of the right wing, but it's also a true crime book. And yeah. uh, the story of how McVeigh and Nichols mostly McVeigh, 
you know, just conspired to build this bomb is to me an incredible story. And, you know, he uh, did a tremendous amount of research. He, he used books from the library. He used books that uh, he could get on mail order to learn how to build an enormous bomb. You know, people who live in farms know that you can use fertilizer to, to make small explosives. It's often used to uh, blow up tree stumps, for example. But the, the more fertilizer you use, the bigger a bomb you could build. And basically, McVeigh realized that if you took 5,000 pounds of fertilizer and uh, poured uh, racing fuel on it, um, you know, improvised bombs often use fuel oil or diesel fuel, but his research revealed that if you use racing fuel, the bomb could pack a bigger punch. You could build a bigger bomb. But he didn't just need fuel oil and fertilizer. He needed the triggering mechanisms. And he and McVeigh figured out a way to uh, rob a quarry where there were uh, explosives that they stole. They figured out a way to finance the robbery by uh, having Nichols uh, steal a bunch of guns to be resold and gems and cash from a gun dealer McVeigh knew in Arkansas. All of these efforts had to be coordinated and pulled together, as well as ultimately the rental of the truck uh, on the eve of the bombing, which was done in Junction City, Kansas. It's an incredible story of how much effort and frankly, in evil, but intelligence it took to organize this all, but McVeigh managed to do it. As I was reading the book, I'm thinking to myself, just as you said, there's this thread that says, let's take a straight line from McVeigh to January 6th. And you can see that evolution. And we've talked about this, but then there's this true crime story component to this is how did these guys, these drifters, loser types of people get the wherewithal to do this. It's a remarkable story. And I don't want to go into all the details because I want people to go buy this book and, and read this, but it is a fascinating account of the inner workings of how these guys built this bomb and chose this building. I mean, I, you know, I covered the trial, as I said, in 1997. And, and so I was aware of the broad outlines, but uh, the details are just extraordinary of uh, the effort and planning and frankly, intelligence that it took to undertake such a massive, need I say, evil project. And that's a big part of Homegrown. So let's talk a little bit about the detonation of the bomb and then McVeigh's efforts to get away. Nichols doesn't show up at the bomb sites. It's just McVeigh who drives the truck in front of the, the Mora building and detonates it and then tries to make his escape. So talk a little bit about the selection of the Mora building, uh, their lack of regret even knowing that there was going to be a, a daycare center in the front of that building and then his efforts to get away. And then we'll, we'll turn to Charlie Hager. Right. Well, you know, McVeigh wanted to bomb a federal building, but he never really considered the FBI building, which is what Earl Turner bombed, because he had never been to Washington. He knew there would be a lot of security there. And he wanted to make a statement uh, in the heartland, in the middle of the country. So the question was where? And they made a, a survey of various uh, cities. They looked at Phoenix. Uh, they looked at Dallas. They looked at uh, Little Rock. And they found that either there was no one main federal building in those cities, or there was the kind of security 
that uh, they couldn't get a, a truck close. But their research revealed, and including, you know, going to the scene, they saw that McVeigh could park a truck right in front of the black glass front of the Murrah building and uh, inflict an enormous amount of damage in, in Oklahoma City, the Alfred P. Murrah building. And so that was the reason he targeted the Murrah building. Uh, you know, when you consider, you know, all, all the meticulous planning that went into this bombing, the choice of the city was sort of random. And, you know, McVeigh had no ties of any kind to Oklahoma City. He'd never been there before. Uh, he started casing the place. But that's what they chose. And they chose the second anniversary of the Waco raid, which was April 19th, 1995. And they rented the truck. Uh, a couple of days before in Junction City, Kansas, Kansas, which was near Fort Riley, uh, where they had both been stationed in the Army, uh, and near where Nichols was living in Harrington, Kansas. But Nichols at that point uh, was sort of on the fence about his participation and didn't want to be uh, there on the day it was set off. He helped build the bomb uh, the day before you know, assemble all the ingredients, and he helped store all the material. So Nichols was an enthusiastic participant in the conspiracy, but it was McVeigh alone who went to Oklahoma City to set off the bomb that morning. And so he sets off the bomb, which destroys parts of 324 buildings in a 50-block radius, killing 163 people, including 15 children in a daycare center. And he had parked a getaway car in an alley a block or two away, gets in the car, and he's driving down the highway. He's an hour outside of Oklahoma City. What happens? Yeah, he's 90 minutes north of Oklahoma City on I-35, heading back to Kansas, uh, where Nichols was. And he's driving without a license plate on his car, which always seemed very weird. And his lawyers asked him about it many times. And McVeigh was was very gave very strange answers. Um, you know, McVeigh, as much as he planned the bombing, did not have much of a plan for what he was going to do afterwards. He thought, in some respects, it was likely he was caught. If he wasn't caught, he didn't really know what he was going to do. He was heading back to Kansas because that's where he was sort of living near Nichols. Uh, but if you were trying to get away, why would you do something as conspicuous as drive a car without a license plate? Uh, McVeigh never had a particularly good answer for that. And an alert state trooper, Charlie Hanger, uh, pulled him over 90 minutes after the bombing, about 77 miles north of Oklahoma City. And as McVeigh was getting out of the car, he was wearing a windbreaker, and Charlie Hanger saw that his jacket tightened a bit, and he saw that he was wearing a holster. And, I, and Charlie Hanger sort of told McVeigh to put his hands on the trunk of his car because he was going to frisk him. And McVeigh said to Charlie Hanger, you know, my gun's loaded. And Charlie Hanger took out his gun and put it to the base of McVeigh's skull and said, so is mine, which I think is a comment for the Badass Hall of Fame. And at that moment, uh, McVeigh did not have a permit to carry the gun. And uh, Charlie Hanger arrested him for the relatively minor charge of uh, carrying a gun in Oklahoma without a permit. Just to fast forward to the future, because the Second Amendment uh, forces have been so active in Oklahoma City, today it is legal to carry a gun in Oklahoma without a permit. And 
Charlie yeah, Hanger could not have arrested McVeigh. Exactly. Today, yeah. Um, which which I find a revealing fact about how the politics of Oklahoma have shifted. But he did arrest McVeigh. And through a series, frankly, of screw ups and mistakes, he was not arraigned on this minor charge for 48 hours. He was held in the lockup in Perry, Oklahoma, for 48 hours. And almost to the minute when he was about to be released on bail, because, of course, someone was going to be released on bail for such a minor charge, the FBI realized that the person who was being held in Perry, Oklahoma, was, in fact, the man who rented the truck in Junction City, Kansas. And they made a frantic phone call to Perry, Oklahoma, and said, don't release this guy. And, of course, he was never released, and he was charged later later that day with uh, with the bombing itself. And in the true crime story part of your book, we're going to leave for the reader to see how minute by minute they were chasing the evidence from the truck axle all the way through the fake IDs to be able to grab him just before he leaves. But you said something that was interesting, and I want to get to it before we turn to the trial and the formation of the the DOJ trial team. You said that McVeigh didn't really have a getaway plan, and you wrote in the book that he saw his mission as one of illumination rather than revolution. He planned the bombing meticulously, but he was going to leave the fight to others who he would inspire. He was not going to be Fidel coming out of the the hills to lead the, he's not a Maoist. Talk about that a little bit. Well, you know, McVeigh was, you know, he became fixated on the bombing itself. And uh, the justification for the bombing, uh, Waco, the assault weapons ban. But he was not, you know, a deep thinker. And he was not someone who had a a movement that he was in touch with. You know, this was, and this is a key part of homegrown, pre-internet. He had not made the kind of context that could lead to a broader revolution. He just hoped as happened in the Turner Diaries, that others would take up the cause. But there was a kind of nihilistic approach and fatalistic approach uh, to the bombing on the part of McVeigh that he didn't know what he was going to do next. He was just sort of hoping that uh, the counter-revolution would follow, but he had no plan for it. No, the, His focus was entirely on the bombing itself, not uh, on what would happen afterwards. And what's interesting, again, in this thread of then to now, with the internet and the ability to meet up socially uh, through these platforms, they could actually form a movement, whereas McVeigh and Nichols, they were doing sort of like manual workarounds, driving, as you said, all around the country, selling Turner Diaries and tchotchkes at, at gun shows. Michael, this is the key difference between the 90s and today, as far as these groups are concerned. You know, McVeigh, as you said, went to gun shows and he tried to talk to people and he sold the Turner Diaries, but he didn't have the personality or, frankly, even the motivation to recruit others. That just wasn't how he was wired. He didn't have the ability to find others. You know, he at one point, you know, one of the most revealing comments in the papers I found in Texas were McVeigh says to his lawyers, I knew there was an army out there, but I just couldn't find it. And he was right. There was an army out there, 
but he couldn't find it. But later, that army found each other through the Internet and social media. Yes, and it led to the Michigan militia trying to kidnap the governor. And I think, as you well argue in the book, January 6th, it's a a pretty straight line. Yeah, 100%. So I want to talk a little bit about the the trial team that the DOJ put together, because that is an interesting story in and of itself, but also has threads to where we are today. So talk about that, please. Well, the person in charge of the investigation was a sort of upper mid-level Justice Department official. You're a former DOJ uh, main justice person. You will appreciate how important this title is, but you know most civilians uh, wouldn't know what the principal associate deputy attorney general does. But that person was essentially the eyes and ears of the deputy attorney general, whose name was Jamie Gorelick at the time. And her chief deputy was a young lawyer, youngish, 42 years old, Merrick Garland. And Merrick Garland was put in charge of the investigation. And uh, Merrick Garland was a superstar of his generation in in the legal world. And uh, what many people may not recognize is that you know, the bombing was April 1995. In January of 1995, uh, the O.J. Simpson criminal case began. And that was becoming a media circus in April. And uh, the lawyers were celebrities and the judge was celebrities and everybody was making jokes about it. And there were, you know, it was part of Jay Leno's monologue every night. And Garland was repelled by that. And Garland, uh, when he and Gorelick, uh set out to build a trial team, wanted people who would not become celebrities and who would try a case that was very narrowly tailored to the specific evidence uh, in the case. And that's what they did. And they found Joe Hartzler, a uh, experienced prosecutor uh, from Illinois, uh, Larry Mackey, who wound up leading the Nichols case, who was uh, from Indianapolis. And they did not become celebrities, and they tried a narrowly tailored case uh, very effectively. But I do think that uh, Garland's uh, aversion to publicity about criminal cases and criminal investigations is something that has carried over to his tenure as attorney general. And there, I think it's uh, a little more questionable whether uh, his approach is, is such a great idea. And you're right that the Garland template, narrow, focused, including the evidence only necessary to meet the government's burden of proof, may be an effective trial strategy. It was an effective trial strategy in Oklahoma City, but it didn't allow for the education of the public about the true threat that McVeigh and his progeny represented. That's the point you're making, yes? And, and, you know, the one person who really got it, who really understood uh, the broader threat was Bill Clinton. And uh, one of the most interesting things I did in in reporting uh, Homegrown was to talk to Clinton and hear how he knew about the militias from his experience in Arkansas. And uh, he had an extraordinary memory, even today, of uh, his contacts with those people and the threat they posed. But Garland, uh, you know, came from a different background, different world. And now, as attorney general, he has a different role. And and I think he has missed an opportunity as attorney general to use the bully pulpit that he has to talk about 
um, the risk of right-wing extremism. His office, I think, has done a very formidable job of prosecuting a thousand people um, in the January 6th um, insurrection. Uh, but uh, out of fear of prejudicing either that trial or other investigations or just because of his temperament and beliefs, he has not been outspoken about the broader threats that the country faces from right-wing extremism and anti-democratic forces. And I think that's been a missed opportunity of his tenure as attorney general. And I think it grows out of his experience in the Oklahoma City bomb. It was the un-OJ case the, that he wanted. Exactly. And he got it. But um, I think the un-OJ case is not appropriate in all circumstances. Well, it's interesting. Clinton says... And you recorded in the interview of him that he said, I know these people uh, from Arkansas. And he says something that was very telling. You quote him as saying, if people feel their identity is in danger of being dislodged, nothing else matters. Well, this is a lot like what we were talking about, about status and caste, that McVeigh and Nichols saw a life slipping away. Nichols in Michigan, in the agricultural world, McVeigh in, in Western New York, in the uh, industrial world. But both of them saw their, their lives and their status uh, slipping away. And that was uh, the central formative experience for both of them. And it fed the rage that led to the bombing. And Clinton saw that in Arkansas. And I think he was right that that was a central motivation of what led to this. At Michigan State, when he gave a commencement speech, not long after, he says, nothing is patriotic about pretending that you love your country but despise your government. Couldn't be said better. And he he was not only right about the Oklahoma City bombing, but enormously prescient about the threats that the country would face in subsequent years. And Obama didn't pick up the mantle, and Biden a little bit, I guess, in his last campaign for president, uh, yes? I, I think Biden's speech uh, in Philadelphia before the, uh, before the midterm elections where he talked about the threats to, to democracy, I thought that was uh, very Clinton-esque in its warnings about what was really going on here. But, but Obama, you know, who faced... Every president faces different threats and different challenges. Uh, he was dealing with an economic collapse when he took office, didn't want to engage. Uh, first black president had uh, unique challenges, to say the least. So he took a different route. But uh, I think Clinton had it right in 1995. Obama had it right in the sense that there was a report from the Department of Homeland Security about the threat of white nationalism, but he sort of pulled it back a bit. They ran in fear. Uh, I mean, this was a low moment in the Obama administration when they released a report that had been in commissioned by the Bush administration, uh, which said that, you know, right wing violence is a threat and returning veterans uh, from a war, second Gulf War in Obama's case, first Gulf War in McVeigh's case, you know, are a kindling. And a bunch of Republicans in Congress said, you're attacking veterans, and that's not true. And uh, Janet Napolitano, who was Secretary of Homeland Security, said, no, 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 we didn't mean that. And we withdraw the report. Well, the report was exactly right. And, and I thought it was a real unfortunate moment of cowardice in 2009. So McVeigh is sentenced to death. I remember that because 
that's when I started covering this myself. I covered for local Fox uh, News his execution, horrible. And Nichols gets life without parole. And the book talks interestingly about the two trials. Nichols is severed from McVeigh. They have two separate trials and the pleas that they each make for the sentences uh, to be had. But I want to ask the final question, Jeffrey, which is, what's the significance? What should be the takeaway? We have a trial, we have a conviction, we have a execution, we have a life without parole. Now we find ourselves in this very perilous time. What's your takeaway? What should our takeaway be? That the threat of right-wing extremism in this country is continuing and real, and it has led to violence, and it will lead to violence. And we have to be vigilant from a law enforcement perspective, as well as uh, respect the First Amendment rights of people to have views all over the political spectrum. But when you look at the uh, central motivations, the obsession with guns, the weird identification with the founding fathers, the belief in the justification for violence, all of that remains a powerful motivator of people who will do harm in this country. And we need to be aware of it and try to prevent it and stop it to the extent we can. The book is Homegrown, Timothy McVeigh and the Rise of Right-Wing Extremism. Jeffrey Tubin, it's a great book. Thank you so much for spending time with me today. Thanks, pal. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.